I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where we push the boundaries of audio storytelling. I'm Isabel Vasquez. Here you'll find the most inspiring and critical conversations in audio from the Third Coast Conference and beyond. This season, we're bringing you all the sessions from the 2018 Third Coast Conference. You'll go behind the scenes with the producers of some of this year's most captivating work. And each week, you can find bonus content in Third Coast's producer news. To sign up, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. This next session is one of two pitch panels, an absolute tradition at Third Coast. It happens every year, and yet each time, it's totally unpredictable. That's because at every Third Coast conference, our friends at AIR set the stage for practicing one of the most critical skills in audio, how to pitch a story, live, right there in the middle of the room. Three producers each pitch directly to a panel of editors to give them a shot at selling their story. Meanwhile, everyone else in the room gets some insight into the process. Back for her second year as a stellar moderator is producer Leela Day of Pineapple Street Media and co-host of The Stoop Podcast. She leads these sessions as a guide from pitch to pitch and as an editor and a mentor. This is the second of two pitch panels we'll be sharing on this podcast. This one features Nick White of KCRW, Robin Simeon of This American Life, and Irene Noguchi of Today Explained. Okay, here's day two of Air's Bitchin' Pitch Panel. Yes, <laughs> Nick White, um, he, you know, works with Unfictional and also Lost Notes. Um, so Matthew Simonson, Matt Simonson, come on up, Matthew. Matthew is a radio producer, works independently with House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. He edits sound designs and composes for Sapiens and Mile High Hustle. Um, go ahead, Matthew. Hey. Hi, how you doing? Ask me that in four minutes. <laughs> um, I've got some music. A man who goes by the name Laraji is sitting in a park, Washington Square Park in New York City in the late 70s. Um, it's a beautiful day and he's playing a zither. It's an old folk instrument uh, that he bought at a pawn shop but he's tuned it and electrified it to sound like what you're hearing right now. He's sitting there playing, busking, and a man walks up to him and drops a note into his bag and uh, walks away. Later he reads the note and says something like, if you want to make an album with me, give me a call. The man was Brian Eno, uh, a member of the group Roxy Music and a famous producer who's worked with everyone from U2 to the sound that Windows 95 made when it booted up. Laraji <laughs> um, does call him and they get together and they make this album, uh, Day of Radiance. It's the third volume in uh, Brian Eno's now seminal Ambient series. But after that, Laraji uh, faded into obscurity. Uh, he's only now recently kind of been rediscovered and appreciated. And part of that's because he's a really new agey guy. Um, you know, crystals and chakras and stuff. He believes in music as a way of uh, meditation and healing rather than commercial value. Um, in fact, um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought, but anyway. Uh, Brian, meanwhile, has gone on to be lauded as the father of ambience and sometimes even the inventor of ambient. Um, and in fact, uh, 
I'm losing my train of thought, sorry. Um, oh yeah, I saw an article that called Laraji the Brian Eno of laughing. Um, I can, oh, and that's why that's significant is because Brian, uh, is Laraji now hosts laughter workshops where he um, sits cross-legged with you and forces laughter as a form of cathartic therapy. So he's, he's known as the laughter guy. Um, I like to think of him as the Laraji of music, not the Brian Eno of laughter. Uh, he is a visionary artist, and he and other people were making ambient music before and during Brian Eno's time making that music. Um, and it's not necessarily a, a battle or anything, but I think that the fact that um, people who make New Age music are kind of dismissed because of their, you know, woo-woo, questionable spirituality, um, kind of creates this divide between New Age and, and ambient. In fact, um, when Laraji was working with Brian, uh, Laraji recalls that Brian was trying to explain to him in kind of lofty academic terms what ambient was, and Laraji kind of said, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I've been doing. I just play what's in my heart. Um, so I really like the story. Uh, I like the chance encounter, and Laraji's a great character, but what I like to examine is kind of how what we uh, value as a society determines who we remember for what and who we laugh off. That's it. Thanks. Great, thanks. Uh, that's one of my favorite records, that Laraji, you know, record. I love it. Um, and I like Laraji a lot. He's really great. Yeah. Um, I think one thing with Lost Note stories that we really are always looking for, and I think you're close there, is kind of getting scenes and getting smaller stories against bigger backdrops. You know, um, we did a story last season about um, a really famous uh, moment in music history, the Folsom Prison concert with Johnny Cash, except we focused on one of the prisoners that was in the front row. Uh, and went on to have his own country music career. Um, what this does uh, that, I love Laraji, I think he's a really interesting figure. What it seems where you're kind of going with it is kind of a more traditional biography of, and a profile of him as an artist, um, which I would be very interested in, it's, but it may not be something for Lost Notes. Um, that's not to say that story's not there, though. Um, so, like, what kind of scenes do you, are there other scenes or other moments in his life that... Um, could like point to. I would like to go into where he went from a classically trained musician as a kid, you know, learning the piano and violin or whatever, to where he had sort of a spiritual awakening and kind of put him on this path towards music. Right. Um, he was making a living as a stand-up comic while he was busking back in the 70s, so that would be interesting to learn more about. I don't know a lot about that. Right. Um, I would like him to kind of maybe recreate um, the moment in the park uh, where he's playing. Uh, he still plays music, so that's easily done. Cool. Yeah. So. And how accessible is he? Have you tried to get in touch with him, if he'd be willing to sit down? Or? I think he'd be very willing. I haven't tried yet to get in touch with him, but um, there are some videos on YouTube. He's, he's around. He's okay. easily accessible. And um, who else do you think you would talk to for this? It'd be great to talk to Brian Eno. Um, <laughs> other than that, um, I know a guy who uh, put out a, a of new age music as sort of a way to bring this genre of music outside of the um, the underground and kind of into the mainstream as an appreciate like appreciated as folk art right. um, and uh, so I could talk to him and, and kind of his relationship with Faraji and how he has fought to take this music seriously okay are there any other are there is there a biography that's been written about him I haven't looked into nothing I know okay is there, are there any other writers or people that have written about him that you might think about talking to? Uh, there are lots of articles on him, yeah. Okay. I could definitely talk to other people who have written for print publications, yeah. Cool. I think there's the start of something maybe there. Um, like I said, I think I would want to have a conversation with you about finding some of the moments in the story, if that would play out, and if that could, that could be there. But I'd be happy to kind of hear more from you. I think having him involved would be contingent, too, Yeah. Uh, whether he would actually want to be... Interviewed, I think that if since he's alive, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I don't think that'll be a problem, but yeah. Cool. Let's be in touch about them. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Matthew. Next, we are going to be pitching to Irene Noguchi, Kyrie Greenberg. Kyrie is a producer, engineer, and reporter in Philadelphia, a regular contributor at WHYY, and her work has been on NPR The Pulse. Um, here and now, and ask me another. 
She has a BA in journalism from Indiana University. Go ahead, Kiria. I'm still paying for it. Um, so, uh, I'm, this story is about the Amish community and something that uh, you guys might not know, 60,000 Amish people come from just 80 founders who fled to the US in the 1600s. And the Old Order Mennonites, who are their neighbors, share a similar story. So this, collectively, the Plain community's genetic isolation means that their kids are at a higher risk for rare, sometimes fatal diseases. And you know these are diseases that are really hard to diagnose, but they're even harder to treat. So we're looking at infant screens, major organ transplants, specialized blood tests, and gene therapy as a way to treat these. And also, they're uh, subject to other kinds of uh, inborn things, like blue eyes. Um, I'm also friends with an Amish journalist, Levina, who is a, has a form of dwarfism that was first identified by Johns Hopkins in the 1960s doing early genetic research. So this, this story, first of all, sets this community at actually the forefront of genetic research and precision medicine. They've been contributing to this research for decades. And how did they do this? Um, they've had a network, they've developed over the past 30 years, they've developed a independent network of healthcare clinics to deal with these special problems that are mostly happen, you notice them in children. So they don't believe in health insurance and they pay for doctor's salaries, stuff like genetic sequencing, specialized blood tests, through quilt auctions that raise about over a million dollars every summer, selling quilts, selling horses, selling all the sort of things that you imagine an Amish family might sell. And so, but this idea that they're in, integrated into research, it's because their isolation means that they are, and their relative um, stability over the past third, 300 years in the States, they have this integrated thing where they have a genealogy, patient data, as well as a bio, like bio bank of their information that is valuable to researchers. And they've been um, negotiating uh, research partnerships with, uh, with hospitals like Harvard and Penn, as well as biotech companies, Silicon Valley, developing gene therapy. Um, so this looks really weird um, could, in the US, this idea of biobanking, but this idea of integrative patient biobanking is becoming a nationalized model in Europe. I spoke to the head of the Danish National Biobank, who said the Amish are absolutely right. This is the way that we're going to solve problems like cancer, mental illness, heart disease, by drilling down through patient data into the genetic code. And you know, we all have four billion base pairs, and it makes sense to start with the communities that are isolated. <laughs> they have a simpler code for scientists to understand. And you know, in the States, we're playing catch up. The NIH has got over a billion dollars to start their own biobank. But I think we're more familiar with the corporate form of biobanking in this, in this states. It's called 23andMe and Ancestry.com. They are using social media data, you know, that like totally unchill thing where they're like, you have a third cousin in Michigan. You know, if you can confirm that, they can sell that data and they have been selling it to corporations like GlaxoSmithKline. So we're seeing the effects of corporatized biobanking, uh, biopatent law, and um, where we're patenting parts of the genome and selling it back as treatment. Amish families are already seeing that effect on their own health care. And you know, they talk about this stuff all the time. I know teens who are talking about dating in the era of genetics, moms who have developed diets based on bionutrigenomics, which is a new form of dietitians, um, kids in research trials, and the first surviving generations of previously fatal genetic diseases. So, um, you know, and the, the, the idea that these isolated communities that are valuable, uh, the, you know, the head of G Decode Genetics is a, is, a, is a biotech company based in Iceland, a, a similarly isolated population. And he's saying that as technology advances, and it's advancing really fast, uh, the value of these biobanks, of these isolated communities, is evaporating. We're going more for the numbers game, large-scale biobanking. And, uh, you know, the, the point of this piece is really that they've contributed to the science, and I would like for them to be recognized in the certain ways that they have
contributed to medical research overall, but also, you know, they're already, they're so advanced, they're already seeing the medical bills for stuff like gene therapy and precision medicine. And these are therapies that are becoming more common in our own care. And if this is the future, I think we should start asking them their experience. Nice. Thank you. Thanks, that was a great pitch. Um, so, Kyrie, uh, I thought you did a lot of amazing research on this, and I can tell you've read up a lot, and I love it when people come to me with ideas where they've read a lot of background and they're able to answer a lot of my uh, follow-up questions. And so, um, one thing you might not know is that most of my Today Explained team is here, and we always sort of like group pitch with each other, so you unintentionally were pitching to the rest <laughs> of our team, so congratulations. <laughs> but it's okay, we're all very friendly people. Um, uh, I also did a little bit of research into the pieces that you've done in the past, because I like to get a sense of, of how people collect tape and, and how they do their stories and what they're interested in. And um, I have to say, you have a good ear for tape. I liked a piece you did on kids in 4-H clubs, and you had that, there's a one golden moment of tape where like a little boy is like, and then my chicken walked over, sat in my lap, laid an egg, and her name is Barbie. <laughs> so, you know, I think you have a good ear for tape to start. But, um, so Today Explained is a new show, and what we typically do is we divide our show into two halves. So part A tends to be more of the newsy part of what we're focused on, part B tends to be more of like the big picture. So I think for, for this, like if we were in a normal pitch session, I'd ask you some follow-up questions to kind of walk me through uh, what's going on here. You mentioned that with the Amish community, um, because of genetic isolation, there's a number of uh, rare fatal diseases. Um, I, I know further on in your pitch, you'd mentioned cancer, mental illness, heart disease. Um, what sort of rare fatal diseases for their community specifically, aside from dwarfism and so forth? Right, so um, one that I've done a lot of research on is an inborn med metabolic disease called maple syrup urine disease. Um, it's basically your body can't process the amino acid lysine or uh, leucine, sorry, lysine is GA1. So these are inborn metabolic errors where you're, you, you need to be developing diets in order to not um, have cerebral palsy, basically. Um, so, they, uh, so GA1, there's also these neurodegenerative disorders, as well as um, uh, stuff that, like, I know these teenage boys who can't sweat or feel pain, and you know, one fell off a horse, and their family didn't really know what was up because he didn't feel bad until he was in the ER. So there's kind of a lot of strange things that haven't been identified specifically um, as genetic causes, but they are in research for them. But stuff like metabolic errors, like PKU, is big um, in certain pockets. But you'll also see like Northwestern University found the life, uh, life gene in a community of Amish in, the, in northern Indiana where they're living to be like 90 and they're drilling down to find that there's a genetic cause of that. So it's kind of a mix. One quick question, have there been any studies done on the percentage of the Amish community, at least in, in the region that you were studying, like what the percentage that have been affected by these diseases to give a better sense? Right, so it depends on the trait that you're looking at. Um, you know, I, I said both community, the plain communities, Old Order Mennonites and Amish, so they come from different founder populations, but they live very similar lives. So it, with MSUD, um, that inborn metabolic error, you can look at some families, you know, you need two recessive genes to make this thing happen. Uh, so you're looking at um, maybe some families have a one in 10 chance of passing this on, but if you have two parents, you have a one in four chance of passing it on. So you could get 10 kids and none of them have it, but four are carriers or you could have five kids <laughs> have it. It's kind of the luck. I call it uh, rolling the dice and holding the one. You know, it, you're gonna sometimes make three points, but. Uh. Yeah. So, so what we do on our show is we sort of do two types of shows. We do um, super hard, like news, like mm -hmm. you know, covering the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and sort of the whole chaos that, that surrounds that. 
Um, and also we do a number of evergreen pieces. And I think the piece that you're pitching me would fall sort of into more of like an evergreen, bigger picture piece. Yeah. Um, so the way we would likely, I'm just sketching this out quickly in my head, but the way that we would likely do it on our show is that we would probably have you on for the first half to sort of walk through in a two-way with our host, Sean Ramos Firm, and kind of walk through like, hey, you know, here's this community that people don't really realize is um, being hit in like an, an extreme way by, the, by these rare diseases, rare, these rare fatal diseases, mm -hmm. and you know, people also don't realize, and this is where we kind of get into the newsy evergreen part of it, mm -hmm. is that it's, you know, it's their, their key to this, um, uh, moving forward with these bio, I'm sorry. Biobanks. Yes, these biobanks, which I think is interesting. I feel like a lot of people may not necessarily heard about biobanks, or sort of like the news of the, uh, the new stuff that they're doing. So I think he would talk with you about that and have you kind of walk him through it. Mm -hmm. And you might have bits of tape throughout there, either people that you've talked to in the Amish community, or it sounds like maybe you talk to people who are in either Northwestern University or this Iceland biotech company, like people who might have interesting things to say about uh, like the likelihood of biobanks taking off in a big way. And another question I think we probably want to ask you is why haven't these necessarily taken off in the US. It seems like a lot of the search forward is in Europe. Is there a particular reason in terms of policy or beliefs or so forth? I would say that there there is a lot of development in biobanking. It is in the corporate realm. Um, you know, 23andMe is kind of our model of biobanking, this is my argument, of our model of biobanking. And it is definitely interfacing with this pharmaceutical model of biopatent law and orphan drug prices, like the orphan drug program, kind of spawning out of that. Um, and you know, people want to know more about their history. Like I think people have heard about like if you're from areas of of, the, of humanity that aren't really into genetic testing, you're not going to get that really accurate view of where your people come from. It's kind of an algorithm average game, and this is very true for genetic research. And so. As computers get faster and we can process this information faster, um, we're going to need these bigger samples. And so 23andMe is a really great place for someone like GlaxoSmithKline. Bayer Monsanto is also developing biobanks in and of themselves. So, uh, and again, like the NIH is playing catch up. Uh, they want a million people's data by, I think, 2022. But, uh, you know, in, meanwhile, in Denmark, they're already taking samples from every baby born, or they'll do right. large population studies of like 1,000 pregnant women or something. So this, this stuff is happening, but it's not in the public sphere. Okay. Um, I think part of the reason I also asked you about how, what sort of progress it's making here in America mm -hmm. is that while we do have global listeners, most of our, Amer our listeners are domestic, and one question we always ask to most pitches that come to us, it's like, why does it matter to our listeners at the end of the day? So why does this Amish community, why do these biobanks over in Europe matter to the person here in America who's driving home at the end of the day? And I'm sure you would say. I, so I'm sure I would say that, you know, the technology is advancing all the time. It's kind of up to the human narrative to describe like how we're going to use it. Is it going to be this corporate model of biopatent law, or are we going to be patenting parts of the genome and selling it back as therapies? Or is this going to be this more like public library with rules model where we're held accountable, these companies are held accountable to international ethics boards saying how this data can be used? Um, you know, the U.S. has been slow to uh, regulate this information and to understand its value to medical research and especially to like pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> and so I think the more we understand how these systems go in place, we can see that Amish people, like I know an Amish family who's getting hit with an $800,000 gene therapy bill that was developed using their community's information. And it will prevent their child from going blind. Um, so this could be us, I mean, to me. And you know, if we do have a gene therapy cure for something that causes blindness, what does that say about optometry? Yeah. What does that say, like, how would you charge a health insurer? These are questions that I want yeah. people to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Were you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so just 
Yeah, yeah, just wrapping up shortly because I, I know we have to get to other people. I think one more question that you don't have to answer this right now, okay. but that we would probably also ask is sort of what tensions there are with the Amish community in terms of like, do they feel any moral tension with the fact that their data is being used on this big corporate level? Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, this sounds like a pitch we'd be, we might be interested in, and the way, like I said, we'd probably break it up is part A, the host would do a two-way with you, mm -hmm. and part B, we might ask to follow up with someone from your Amish community uh, from the Amish community you've been following, like maybe a parent and a child kind of talking about for part two, sort of the impact it would have on their life, and we might record an, a conversation with them and, and sort of score it as like a non-narrated piece where like maybe the parent and the child kind of walk us through sort of like how this has impacted their lives. So that might be a possible way we frame it. But yeah, I think it's a great pitch. And, and real quick, I mean, I am, I've been working with this community for over a year, and I would like to see their stories preserved as an oral history archive in the history of medicine. So if anybody has some kind of connection to that world, I would be really appreciative, and you know, it's not somebody, it's not a community that you just call up, so. Right, thank you, Kyrie. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we are going to move on to a pitching to Robin for This American Life, Rachel Cassandra. Rachel, step up. Rachel's a freelance writer and producer based in San Francisco. She reports on health, mental illness, addiction, and art. Hi, Rachel. Hi, I'm Robin. Um, okay, so Amanda is 30 with bright green eyes and curly brown hair. I meet her at Fresno, California's Needle Exchange. She's sitting on an aluminum chair waiting to see the doctor. Soon after I start talking with her, she tells me she's a heroin and methamphetamine addict. She starts crying because she just found out she's pregnant. She doesn't believe in abortion and doesn't know what to do. Amanda is homeless, staying in a motel that costs $50 a night. She's a sex worker and her boyfriend is a drug dealer and abusive. She has three kids who live with their dads. But Amanda believes this baby is part of God's plan to get her off drugs and out of this lifestyle. She knows Child Protective Services will take the baby if it tests positive for drugs in the hospital, so she wants to get into rehab. She wants to leave her boyfriend, and she wants stable housing. This is the story of her pregnancy. It's a TikTok story counting down to find out whether Amanda can get off drugs in time to give birth and maintain custody. Reporting this story over nine months, I got to know Amanda deeply. I saw the tiny decisions that all add up to big life or death moments. One night, she's $15 short on rent and loses her place. A fight with her boyfriend leaves her carless, so she misses her OBGYN appointment. Her four-year-old daughter finds a syringe, also called a rig, in her purse. I said, Ava, you did not touch these okay, baby. They're really sharp. She goes, I already did. It's not sharp. It didn't hurt me. Three days later, I get a phone call from my baby's dad, cussing me, fucking pissed. And I go, what happened? His mom was watching the baby, and she had a rig in her makeup bag, her little makeup bag I gave her, because she wanted to be like her mommy, and had one in there. She didn't even know what it was for, but because her mommy had one, and you know, because I had one of mine. She wanted one in hers. And like, I guess I had a little bit of heroin residue on it. Like, she could have easily died. You know what I mean? Like. Do you hear any food? During the piece, I developed a relationship with Amanda and at times stepped out of the traditional reporter position. I was with Amanda when she was bleeding while seven months pregnant, afraid to go to the hospital. Terrified, I convinced her to go, picked her up, and took her to the clinic. I saw her give birth to a healthy baby girl, Macy, and I was the first person to feed the baby, grateful the baby made it. I watched Amanda shoot up heroin in the bathroom of her motel room, a Narcan overdose kit nearby just in case. I was in family court when she lost custody of her daughter, and I spoke to her after she had her first hour-long supervised visit with Macy, crying because the time went so fast. I was a middle-class journalist, and she was mired in poverty, but we connected deeply and established great trust. But Amanda also surprised me. I kept expecting her to drift away, but she always came back and delved into talking about the darkest parts of her life. She told me what it feels like in her belly when she uses. She also found bright bits in her life, talking about how much her sex work clients mean to her, 
She showed me pictures of her kids on her phone and told me stories of them. She wants to be a good mom. I believed Amanda when she said she could turn, her life, turn around her life. I hoped that my recording her story, acting as a witness, would support her change. I have about 20 hours of tape with Amanda, which I've whittled down to a working draft that's about 45 minutes long. A short eight-minute version of the piece was published on the California Report magazine for KQED. A written version of the story was published by The Atlantic, focusing on relevant trends and statistics. Amanda's story echoes that of thousands of other women. 6% of pregnant women use illicit drugs. The number of babies born opioid-dependent has quadrupled over the last 15 years. And about a third of children entering foster care do so because of parental drug abuse. For this piece, I want to show the emotion behind the trend to focus on one woman's experience. Listeners will want to know whether Amanda carries the baby to term, whether the baby is healthy, and whether she'll get to keep the baby. They'll be rooting for her and ultimately disappointed in the power of drug addiction. Currently, the baby Macy is healthy and with Amanda's cousin, now the adoptive mother. Amanda began a rehab program that dropped out. She's currently using, but hoping to join a program again. Great, great, thank you. Wow, okay, so that's a, that's a happy tale. Um, Macy's how, is the baby in Macy's how old? Uh, about, about, I, I have to do my math. Oh, she's an infant still yeah, under a year. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, tell me a little... You said something here at the end that I just want to start with, which is that... Um, well, first, I really appreciate you laying out this pitch so thoroughly. I also deeply appreciate um, just your commitment to reporting all the way through. I mean, it's really, it's really extraordinary. I'm sure a lot of people in the room have, um, have, have hopefully ha had an opportunity to dive into a story as, as deeply as you have. Something happens when you follow something over time that you just, that you can't get when you're turning around stories more quickly. And I really, really appreciate that. I mean, in the beginning of your pitch, you laid out so many terrifying things, right? Uh, so many terrifying things that I was like, I can't, I don't think I have them all in my list that I wrote down, but she's 30, heroin addict and meth addict. She's pregnant. She doesn't want to abort. She doesn't want to abort the baby. She's homeless. She's a sex worker. Her boyfriend's abusing her. And she's trying to get to rehab. And then at the end of your pitch, you're like, and I am hoping that people will be rooting for her. And yeah, I mean, yes, yes, we, let's like, as, as human beings, let's, let's all root for each other. I want to know more specifically, what tape do you have from her where you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I mean, I want her to stay alive. I want everything to, I, I just want to kind of get in front of that. But it is a little nerve-wracking to hear that she's pregnant and has all of these circumstances that seem like they are, are just like the definition of awful for an infant. How is it that we're rooting for her? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, when, when I, it's hard to pinpoint like exactly what's there, but when I would talk to her in the beginning, she had such clear plans about how she would get out. And there are a lot of resources in Fresno and in California to help her with that. Um, get it, get out, exactly. Get out of, uh, well, she would call it this lifestyle. So, you know, find stable Just housing. like holistically, like no more sex work. Like yeah. uh, leave her boyfriend. Is something that you talk to her about on tape or no? Yeah. Is, is it something that she wants is to get away from the abusive boyfriend or is she more in a headspace of like, He's good to me, but it's, he has a temper. Um, no, she she talked about how she wanted to wanted to leave him. Yeah, um, yeah. and um, I mean, I'm not sure like why I believed her. I mean, I think maybe like all of us, yeah, we I just like wanted to to root for her and was like pulled into that. Um, she also like the cluster of thing of difficulties that she's dealing with are, are relatively common. Those things a lot of times go together. Yeah. And so in some ways, she's very like typical in that way. No, and I appreciate that. I like how you're talking about a bigger problem that's an important problem that we should think about. Um, 
and you're doing it in a narrative way and you have a character. And I respond immediately to all of those things. I'll say that I, I worry a little on this one, just that when you, when you kind of think about the circumstance in the beginning, I'm already, I'm already thinking, oh God, are like, are the resources even there? Is that going to be something like, is something going to appear in the story that I'm going to say, oh yeah, I didn't know that Fresno had such a great program for getting people. Like I almost need something that is, that, that I can um, hang my hope on. Uh, because I, because I'm, unfortunately, it seems like I, I think that we know that the resources are skinny and we've, we know about the statistic and what I really want in any story that I do is to three-dimensionalize the person that we're talking to and about enough that we see how, how, how they are not this statistic. Does that make sense? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that she isn't to you. So if we had more time, and I know we're like, we have a, a TikTok happening, but if we had more time, what I would want to ask you about is more what the, like, the nature of your relationship really was, where you, where she stepped out of these things that are, that we kind of can see as, as being more of a statistic and where, she, where you found, like, where you may have found she was, um, extraordinary or surprising in ways. How many children did she have? She had three. Three, and their ages are? Um, or approximately? It's yeah, four. like 10, eight, and four. And they're yeah. all um, with adoptive they're parents? With, no, they're with their dads. They're and, their dads. Yeah, okay. and she, does, she hasn't lost custody of them. She just doesn't. Even she, Macy, the ba no, the baby the is the one. Lost, yeah, the baby okay. is, um, she lost custody, yeah. But um, she sees her kids. Um, yeah, pretty regularly. Well, that's what I would want to talk to you more about, is a little, like, what you found in, like, more specific targeted ways, report, like, sitting with her and, and re reporting this over, over time. Um, again, for me personally, and also I, I would, I think for the show, I, I can already, um, so, so quickly, the way that we, we deal with pitches at This American Life, we have like a Tuesday story meeting and we pitch all into this document. It's just a Google, Google document and then we all um, read it together. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a 30 to 50 page document every Tuesday. It's like people get into it, right? Like people are and, and good, good. And, and then the responses are sometimes longer than the pitches and we kind of comb through all that and then sit together and bat it around. And, I think I can say that I think there's some, someone on the pitch document, if not me, might say, I'm worried that I can see that I, I, can't, I can't see how this works out. And so I'm worried that this isn't going to reach the level of surprise or that would allow us to hold on to the nuggets of information that you really want to convey as far as the t statistics. What do we do? How do we approach this? So, so that's kind of where I am on this one. But I would want to talk to you more because I can't overlook the fact that you have um, reported it for a very long time. And that's special. And thank you for doing that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. You guys. Fine. That's fine. Thank you, Rachel. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with the rest of the session in just a minute. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we're back with the rest of day two of Air's Bitchin' Pitch Panel. You're up next 
pitching to This American Life. Noam is a freelance radio and video producer in New York. His work has been on Love and Radio, Freakonomics, um, and Criminal. Cool, go ahead. So it's 1981, and Alex Pacheco is a student at GW, and Alex loves monkeys, and why shouldn't he? Monkeys are cute. He even had a pet monkey as a kid, and he decides he's going to spend time in a laboratory. So he opens up a phone book, and the closest laboratory is the Institute for Behavioral Research in Silver Spring, and he goes over there and knocks on the door. He's allowed in, and he has a meeting with Dr. Edward Taub, who is the man who runs the lab. And what Taub is doing research on is neuroplasticity. Can the brain rewire itself? And so in order to do that, what he's doing is he's taking monkeys, he's severing the nerves between their arm and their brain, and then he's forced, and forcing them to use the weakened limb in order to try to train them to sort of use that. So how do you do that? Sort of with you know, carrots and sticks, you know, rewards and, and punishments. And um, you know, Pacheco's killing it. He's a, a big researcher. He's working there four or five times a week. He's working nights and weekends. And some of the research is, is pretty intense because um, sometimes what they'll do is they shock the monkey until its weakened limb can close a lever so they no longer get shocked. And they view the limb sometimes as a phantom limb, so they mutilate it and they bite their fingers off. And it's, it's really intense. And if you see photos, it's really uncomfortable. And it gets to this sort of really interesting philosophical question, which is to say, most of us are cool with saying you don't torture animals if it's just for cosmetics. All of us are cool with saying you don't torture humans if it's for medical research. However, can you torture animals if it's for medical research? Dr. Taub would say, yeah, this is sort of what he has dedicated his life to. If you ask me, I would say I am very uncomfortable with it, but it, it kind of makes some sense to me. If you ask Alex, well, here's the thing. He does love monkeys. He did find the lab in a phone book, but he's not exactly who he says he is because he's working undercover. He's recently started an animal rights group with his then girlfriend, Ingrid Newkirk, and the name is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Um, and this is their first undercover operation. So when he's killing it and he's working nights and weekends, what he's really doing is gathering evidence and he's bringing in other researchers and they're telling him like, yeah, the conditions in this lab are really absolutely crazy. And they gather evidence and at the time there was basically no federal oversight of research uh, places. So what they do is they go to the state courts. And so on September 11th, 1981, Edward Tao becomes the first medical researcher ever charged with uh, cruelty, um, cruelty to animals. And so begins the over a decade long legal saga of the Silver Spring Monkeys, which is largely forgotten, although it was a big deal in the 80s. At one point, the top three topics the White House was getting letters about, healthcare, abortion, and the Silver Spring Monkeys. Barbara Bush gets over 45,000 letters in 1989. It puts PETA and animal rights on the map. A lot of animal rights activists point to this as the seminal moment at which animal rights, uh, the movement in the U.S. is no longer a fringe thing and it really becomes sort of an established, recognized thing. It leads to legislative changes, the revision of the 1985 Welfare Protection Act for animals. And the case actually goes all the way to the Supreme Court, who sort of rules about what, you know, what's going to happen with these monkeys and, and um, what jurisdiction they're going to be charged on. Um, and it also seems to me uh, completely uh, plausible that future generations will look back at this as sort of like a groundbreaking moment um, in terms of how we sort of view animals. Um, as for the resolution of the case, like real life, it's sort of messy. The monkeys, some of them die naturally. Uh, some of them do get released to a sanctuary in San Diego. Some of them are euthanized by the NIH. She said that they were sick, but some of the animal rights people do not exactly believe them. Um, the ones who are euthanized and who die naturally end up being dissected, and lo and behold, it turns out there is cortical remapping that goes on in their brain. Dr. Tao, initially his life is completely ruined. It is hard to get grants and have a research lab when you are charged with 119 counts of animal cruelty. He loses his funding, his lab closes, he's convicted of six counts. However, in the end, the conviction's overturned, he beats everything, he opens up a new lab at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, in the late 90s, he creates constraint-induced therapy, which helps stroke victims regain mobility. Um, and he's now uh, celebrated in his profession. He got a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004 from the American Psychological Association. As for Alex Pacheco, he views the whole thing fundamentally as a failure. We still have sort of this sort of research going on. It didn't have the effect he wanted. Now the monkeys got out. 
And in fact, if anything, it's harder than ever to do this sort of work. Starting in the early 90s, you started having ag-gag laws, in part promoted by ALEC, the sort of right-wing think tank which promotes state legislation, which makes it hard to be able to go into places and surreptitiously take video and photographs. You had in 2005 the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which now makes that sort of federal prohibition to be able to do that. And more importantly, he can't do undercover work himself anymore because he's too high profile. And to Pacheco, undercover work is really what they have to be doing because that's how you change hearts and minds. You have to show people the crazy shit that they can't see. We, we, we know how many trophy animals are being brought into the country, but we don't have a sense of what's going on in these small spaces. And in fact, Pacheco ends up leaving PETA in the early aughts because he says that they've strayed from what they should be doing and that they're not doing undercover work anymore. He now runs um, something called 600 Million Stray Dogs Need You, which is trying to create a chemical cookie that can neuter dogs naturally, although there are people online who will say it's like a very dubious organization that does not really seem to be doing the science that it should. Um, in terms of this story, um, I have uh, Pacheco is willing to participate and talk about everything, Ingrid Newkirk is, Dr. Tao is willing to talk about some of it, there's tons of archival, because this was a big deal in the 80s, um, PETA has given me the audio from the entire first trial, the Supreme Court thing, there is online, and, um, and that's the story of, of, of Alex Pacheco and the Silver Spring Monkeys. Okay, um, that's a fun pitch. That is a really fun pitch. Um, I've, yeah. Uh, as fun as monkey torture gets. Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> uh, so just so I understand a couple, is, is a couple things. Pacheco's the founder of PETA. Yeah, so he founded it with his then girlfriend. They end up splitting up during the 80s, but it's, it's kind of a, they end up still living together after they split up because they're both really invested in what they do. Ingrid's still connected to PETA, he is not. But they, they just were two lovers who really loved animals. She was the head of the pound, the first woman to be head of like the animal shelter in DC. Um, and that's where he met her because he would love going there sometimes. And, and, yeah. and he's no longer, like there's no, there's no association with PETA now. It's not something that- Correct, he, he, he left the group, doesn't, you know, doesn't agree with sort of what they're doing now and, he, and he's doing 600 He doesn't agree with what they're doing now. He thinks that they should be doing more undercover work. To him, this is really what animal rights protesters- But it's against the law to do that. It's like there's and also Peter has doing him. less of that. Yeah. yeah, so in part it's like his greatest triumph is in some ways like, I mean that's part of what's interesting about him, his greatest triumph is fundamentally to him a failure. So I spoke to him on the phone last week and he's like completely on board with this sort of story. Most people connected to the story are, because it's one of these stories where people have really strong opinions uh -huh. for uh -huh. or against research, yeah. and when people have strong opinions, to tell you about them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so to him, he really like sees that, you know, he's like, we won a couple battles, but we lost the war. He's still, you know, like animal research is still going on. Um, I, what do you, what can you tell me about um, animal, okay, animal research is still going on and he just wants to put an end to all animal research. I mean, for, right, yeah. And, 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 and same thing, like uh, Ingrid Newkirk has like a famous quote that like, even if this stuff had a medical useful purpose, we shouldn't be doing it anyways. Um, so there are people who believe that even if it is of medical use, we still shouldn't be doing it anyways. Who do you know that would um, present, like who, do, who would you, who, if you could think of someone, or I would encourage you to think of someone who would argue, um, no, it's important that we keep doing this animal research. Like, yes, it was like, it, the history of it is grotesque and now we're in a certain place where we really need to consider the benefits. So the most obvious one is Dr. Tao, who still is actively researching. He now gets grants. He's like still in good standing, and I was like a, a, a lionized member of his field. How does Tao talk about his um, early research? So he actually has an interesting sort of background, which is um, the reason he's into this is because the prevailing theory um, through most of the 20th century is that animals need sensory input in order to move their limbs. And he always thought, I really don't think that's the case. So he was a grad student at Columbia. He ends up leaving the program because they don't like him doing this. They're like, no, animals need sensory input. He thinks, no, they really don't. And so he sort of uh, dedicated his, his life to this. And he did some research which was like super intense, like sometimes um, taking monkeys out of the room, sewing their eyelids shut, and then putting them back in. It's like his, his stuff is at the extreme of 
And again, he's created a treatment for stroke victims, so like, maybe, maybe that is okay. But when you read the details of what he's done research-wise, he's dedicated his life to doing these experiments. I mean, he's not like uh, Harry Harlow's a famous medical, like did research on animals where he like put them in a, a pit and like go crazy because they're isolated. So there's like nothing really to learn there. But like Tao is actually doing things which have a positive effect, but his, his research is like super gruesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, okay, this is what I this is what I like about it. This is what I like about it is you kind of have this this um, I don't know you have an origin story on your hands, right? And it's entertaining, um, partly because of you, which I just want to point out. I think that um, it's important when you're thinking about pitches, everybody, to think about what you, the reporter, what you're bringing to the pitch. And I, because you're enthusiastic about it, I'm I'm enthusiastic with you. Um, I I I feel like. Well, it's a story I, I haven't heard before, and I like that a lot. Um, and then you're kind of doing this, it starts in 1981 thing. I thought the beginning of your pitch was excellent. You had some, like, the way that you structured it was very artful um, and uh, had some very nice revelations in it. So that gives me a sense of your strength as a storyteller. I, I feel like what's happening now, what I would want to know, um, what I would want to know more is like this last, like what's kind of happening now that like if it's an origin story that starts in 1981 has all of this kind of powerful stuff happening and you have all this archival and you have access to all the guys. I like that there are two very controversial guys at the center of it who have didactically opposed opinions. It makes all of us think in a way that we should. And so that's good. I want to know what is ha what's happening kind of uh, what's currently like I, I want to figure out a way as uh, as we say to bring it into the future a little or, or into the present and project a little into the future like kind of figure out what it what is it now I'm, I'm not sure like I guess I'm not sure where the story totally ends if that makes sense yeah. but it's it's not that would be something that I think you could kind we we could chip like we could chew on a little more? I mean, there's one way which doesn't like, directly connect to ethics, which is like the whole world of ag-ag laws is sort of fascinating. And, and animal rights yeah. activists absolutely hate it because yeah. it makes it really hard to do the research that they think is really effective. And, and the reason Pacheco views this as a failure is he's like, people could see the, I mean, you can look at the photos online of these like monkeys and restraints and it's super uncomfortable, um, but it didn't have the effect he wanted, fundamentally. Like, Taub is still out there doing research now. Um, and it's harder than ever to get this. Um, so that's one angle, but if the, if the sort of focus is, is medical ethics, then, then you're right, you have to sort of end with like a, a current debate. I sort think of I'm, I'm personally more interested in like, okay, what does it mean? Okay, we're gonna tell like this gruesome story about monkeys, and I just kind of want to know, okay, so what is it, what, what, what should we, where are we now? Like, what does it mean for us now? Because if we're gonna go back and do it and talk about like these, this. That, like these gruesome scenes. That's what I would want to know. I'll say my one reservation, and this has nothing to do with you. This is about um, working for a show that has been on the air for many years. Is that we in the last year did oh, monkey sorry. selfie? I don't know. Um, so my, I'm sorry that you saw it last night. I know. I, I was like. I feel devastated for you. No, but just seeing it last morning. night, right morning. before this I was morning. Like, I'm so curious. Has this American not done anything about monkeys and? Because in some ways, what I, what I think is like, <laughs> which that story deals with, is the whole larger question of like, we're entering this moment where animals have increasingly rights now, which is sort of what that story deals that with. That is what that story's about, yeah, yes. So. Um, uh, my colleague Dana Chivas did an incredible story uh, called uh, Monkey Selfie, and it is, you guys should listen, and, and please listen and think about this pitch, I, because it, it, it'll kind of illuminate the conundrum of a little bit working for a show where we're like, we just, we did a monkey, like the actual thumbnail is this beautiful photo of, of a monkey who's taking a selfie. Uh, and, and so, and so that, that's like, that would, um, that would be a thing that would, that would be, I'm just, I'm just saying it plainly. That would be a thing that you would be up against. We would, people inevitably at This American Life sitting in our pitch group would say, but we did monkey selfie and we know that PETA does these things and we know like the lengths to which they will take it to the highest court to fight for animal rights as though animals are humans. In that story, uh, I believe the lawyer actually um, used like some 1800s slavery law to parallel what monkey, the rights that monkeys should be. Just seems like something to think about. Uh, and so, so, so anyways, it's just, it's memorable because it has all these interesting tidbits and there's a little bit of a crossover. I don't want to discourage you from like having like, you have a, it's like, it's, it's maybe not exactly for This American Life because we have monkey selfie a year ago. Yeah. 
that's actually like, just to be straightforward, that's what we're considering is how long has it been since we did a story that is like this? And can we, do we want to, if we're going to revamp of a version of a story, is it going to meet a slightly high, or do we feel solid about wanting to do it again? But look, I don't, I, this is a cool or, origin story. Like it's, I, I just don't want to discourage you in any way. It might not be exactly for this American life for technical, like these technical reasons, but it's, it's pitch that you should pitch, yeah. continue to pitch. Yeah. Thank you. Noam. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we are going to open it up to some questions. If you guys want to line up at the mic, and we're going to have a little question and answer panel. Of Great. Time. But um, I, I actually had a question for Irene, who said she listened to Curious pieces online. And I know a lot of times some pitchers, when they send a written pitch, they'll send links to things. Like, is that normal? I mean, I was like, Irene, listen to an actual link here? That's very, I've never had anyone like listen to any links that I've sent when I pitch. So I'm just like, is that, is that something that you have time to do? Actually, is that something you suggest people do? <laughs> I'm just glad. You know, my team is like, does Irene have extra time? <laughs> I already um, have the time I, to do that. I think most producers and editors are naturally curious, and I think I do it for twofold reasons. One, because I'm a trans producer, and my natural inclination is to go and do research right away. And two, I think if you try to look at more of a breadth of a person's work, you'll have a better sense of kind of what they're bringing to the pitch table, also what they're interested in, and what their strengths might be based on their past work. But, um, but it shouldn't discount at all from the pitch they bring to the table. Go ahead. Hello. Uh, impossible. Can you I would just say generally the longest one I've probably ever read is probably the worst. That makes sense. Keep it short. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, just as a, I don't remember the specific one, but I'm saying the longest Like a written pitch that's like four pages long, right? So what do you guys think? Like when you have, when you get pitches, you think this, the pitch, the story should be summarized like in the first couple sentences and then go through it and do you want a couple paragraphs? Like what catches your attention when you get a written pitch? Because most of the time they're written, right? Yeah, um, for, yeah, um, mostly they are written, yes. Mm -hmm. Mostly they are um, through story pitch or emails or something. Uh, I don't have like a steadfast thing. Um, I really don't. I will say I, I don't mind long pitches, if that's okay to say, um, if it's warranted. It's kind of like if you know the scope of the thing that you're telling, maybe you have to write me a longer email. That's fine. I, I think that that's fine. Um, I mostly just want to know, I, I kind of just want to know the stuff. I, I don't want like a, I don't want a lot of like, let me give you the context of the thing. I kind of want to know immediately what is the story, as, as quickly as you can, what is the story about? Who is it that you want to talk to? Who is it, like, who is it that you want to talk to? What is it that's driving this story for you? And I will say, like, I think there's maybe a, sometimes I, I'll notice that there's kind of a pitch that's written in an ironclad way. Like, you cannot poke holes in this sucker. Like, mm -hmm. it's just, there is just nothing wrong. And I actually really respond to pitches that have, I mean, you know, we're journalists in the room, and I, I, I respond to a well-balanced pitch. I respond to someone who says, okay, this is what I'm really into. I'm super into this. I'm, like, obsessively into, into this. Like, whatever it is, like, this is what I'm into. This is what I'm trying to do. The thing that I'm, and who can also, in a balanced way, say, the thing that I'm worried about is that this story would be better if I got this person, but I'm going to tell you right now, that seems like a challenge. Do you think that that would, do you think there's a workaround? Someone who is actually chewing on the feasibility of the story more than trying to, like, get past the first step, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Anyways, that's what I like in a pitch. Um, to answer your question earlier, uh, it's hard for me to think of like the worst pitch I've ever received, just because I think there's part of me that like hopes I can resuscitate it, and like you know if I ask enough questions, we can like reshape it into a, into a workable pitch. Um, but to, for the second question, um, I think like especially when my team brings pitches, we think obviously one sort of the newsiness, what's the news angle. But two, this is something that my producer, Luke Vanderplug, I think does a really good job at, 
is that he always kind of asks, like, what is the human element of this? Like, what is the character in the story? Um, my producer, uh, Noam uh, Asenfeld, had done a story about, um, Noam, what's the name of that, that uh, sports team? I'm really bad at sports with Native American. The Indians, yeah, yeah, thank you. So, <laughs> I'm really bad at sports. show on basically um, how, uh, you know, uh, sports teams that have mascots that are super often racially inappropriate and racially insensitive um, to certain groups. And he ended up finding um, a man named, was it was Sundance, a man named Sundance. And, and rather than just have Sundance come on and complain about what the Indians were doing and why the team was, you know, why the team was super slow about the change that they finally did, like, um, he had sort of, they walked through Sundance through his, his story about why it mattered so much to him. And he eventually revealed this one moment where uh, he was walking out of the post office carrying his little son, and a guy drives, a bunch of guys drive by in a car, and they lean out the window and they yell at him, go back to where you came from, or go back home. Which the ultimate irony is that like Native American guy, right? Like, <laughs> um, but, but just that to him, that was sort of an, he won an everyday part of life, unfortunately, for a lot of minorities in America, and two, that he never wanted his son to grow up in a world where he had to deal with that. And that was why pursuing that and really, uh, and, and uh, every opening game day, he would go and, and, and march and chant about what, why he felt they were doing that was wrong. And that was sort of like the human element that I think we look for in our show pitches that sort of stands out. Yeah. And Lila, can I answer? Because um, yeah, I didn't answer your question about the worst pitch because I really couldn't think of anything. I was like, blank. I got nothing. Um, I, and, I, and now I ha think I have an answer, which is that you know, a pitch is a story, right? It's the beginning of the story. And I think I don't remember bad pitches. I'm reading so many pitches. Like, I really remember the good ones. And I really remember the ones that are like not quite there. But I just like, there are certain ones that just haunt you in ways that I almost like love where you're like, I can't even explain it. I can't stop thinking about it. I see all the holes in this pitch, but I'm still thinking about it. If the pitch isn't good, I just don't remember it. I just really, there's, and, and that's, that's a, and, and it's a good degree of pitches. If it's just like reading a book or something, right? It's like, you know, hang on to it. Anyways. Um, I think the best pitch I ever got, I still remember it was maybe five, six years ago. It was two lines. It was uh, an email that just said, uh, my grandfather was murdered uh, 30 years ago. Um, I went back to the scene of the crime, there was still blood on the walls. <laughs> and then he sent a bunch of phone calls he'd had with his family members over the years about that case. And uh, I was like, oh, yes, okay, we'll look into this. Um, the story was more complicated than that, but I just always remember that pitch and that really, you know, KCRW's shows, we work with a lot of independents and each project is a wholly unique collaboration, has a different sound, and so we really get people going. I mean, I always listen to links when people send it. I think that's almost the most important thing. And then trying to just get people going as quickly as possible from there. I love that they are listening to links because I feel that so many times, like especially in the beginning, you'd send some, I'd send some links to things, and you know, there's just like crickets. Um, but we have a question here. Yep, I have a two-parter, and you kind of led into it. So I was wondering what percentage of the pitches that you get actually turn into shows, and of those that turn into actual episodes or shows, what percent would you say are new people to the field, like not seasoned storytellers, but people that are taking the chance? Well, I don't, I can guess, but this is just, yeah, I can, I can guess the percentage that will be very small <laughs> about how many um, pitches become shows, uh, shows are hard to pitch. I mean, but also if you have a show idea at, for This American Life or a theme that you can flesh out, we take these kinds of pitches too, right? Like sometimes I do get a pitch that's like, I don't know what the stories are, but I think that this is like a topic you guys should chew on. And that happens sometimes, but oh God, I really, it's the percentage is very low. I mean, we as staff, um, and the number of producers on the show now is somewhere in the teens. 
Uh, we as staff are, we pitch every three weeks, two pitches um, with the help of you guys and other people or just stuff that we you know, like self-generate pitches. And I would say a lot, a lot of the stuff on the show is self-generated. And I think the reason for that is because um, we're just, we're like, we're hearing so many pitches all the time that there's a little bit of a, like, um, an understanding of like a, a whole, a complete understanding of like, what have we been doing? What do we want to do as a show? So there's like, there is like that kind of dialogue that said, um, we are always saying more new voices and as a producer, and I know this is true for a lot of my colleagues, we're always looking to like, just grab someone in and, and say, but what that comes from, you were saying how many story you were, your question was, um, taking a risk and going outside of new storytellers. I feel like we're always looking for a storyteller. I don't think that we're just saying like, hey, I like the person at my library. I like talking to her. Maybe she could report a story. No, <laughs> right? But, but, it's, but storytellers, any kind of storyteller, if you do, um, if you do live storytelling, we listen to those. Send us links. We listen to links. Um, all of this stuff. If you're a storyteller and you have a story to tell, it does not. You do not need to be a seasoned reporter. We partner people with producers. We work together. We put it together. So anyone who feels, anyone who's like, I am a storyteller. I know that. What I know that's who I am. Pitch. Send us your stuff. Yeah. Pitch people. Pitch. Um, we are out of time for today's session, but um, I just wanted to let you guys know that. All of our editors up here are accepting pitches. Um, you can read their pitch guidelines either on air, the Association of Independence and Radio, that has pitch guidelines for a lot of different, different um, outlets that are here today. Pitch away while you're here at Third Coast. We want to hear your stories. A round of applause for the producers that pitched today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Third Coast Pocket Conference. You can find a full transcript thanks to Descript by visiting our website or by clicking the link in the show notes. If you haven't already signed up for producer news, go to thirdcoastfestival.org and click on the newsletter button at the bottom of the page. We'll have weekly updates, resources, and more. You will not want to miss these. The Third Coast Pocket Conference is produced by me, Isabel Vasquez. The executive director of Third Coast is Johanna Zorn. Third Coast is also Maya Goldberg-Safer, Emily Kennedy, Gwen Maxi, and Rebecca Silverman. We'll be back next week with another session from the 2018 Third Coast Conference, but in the meantime, you can always check out the extensive library of audio stories on our website or download our other podcast, ReSound. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.